Welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. I'm your host, Troy Hammond, and on today's episode, we're chatting with Nick Holdsworth. Nick is the, well, was the head of ecosystem at Zero, and before that, chief marketing officer at Vend, where I worked with him. There was a big famous F-bomb gate that we talk about, which is essentially where he uh, wrote a swear word and job ad and then threw me under the bus and said that I wrote it because my name was on the job ad. So I'm going to get him back on the podcast about this. We talk about you know, his journey and we talk about his journey from being uh, like an early stage startup where he was employee number one at Vend and how he got into that role and then how he took that role and created that role into a chief marketing officer and then he realized that he wanted to go and work at a bigger company and learn the next scale up and, and what he learned at Zero and what he didn't like about Zero and what the hell is he going to do now? And so, yeah, really fascinating conversation. I love chatting with Nick. It was good to chat over a whiskey uh, it was always good to see old friends. And so I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed chatting with Nick and potentially the whiskey. Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. We're talking about this before. I feel like. Like when I, when you do a podcast, you do develop like this emotional connection with someone, where because you, you're like intently looking them in the eyes, yeah, having a deep I can conversation, hear your voice right in my ear, yeah, like you're, yeah. And then so afterwards, I would say like I've made so many friends now off the back of the podcast, just from like people I see, I see them in the street and they come running up to me and hug me, and you know, like it's um it's a cool thing, you know. Oh, like, it's nice to see you again. It's nice yeah, to share man. a whiskey. I I you know. I, I really appreciate the effort of creating an entire podcast series and having thirty guests and. But you could have just asked me for a whiskey any time. Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was a long play, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was the best play, <laughs> but it was definitely a long play. Yeah, oh, but, I appreciate the effort. Yeah, that's what I do. And there's I'm, even a banquet dinner downstairs yeah, as well. That's for afterwards, All in mate. my honour, Troy. Yeah, it's yeah, I know. Really rolling up. Tell your wife you're not coming home. <laughs> <laughs> how you been, man, anyway? Like, how has been life post-zero? Yeah, it's good. It's, um, it's weird saying that to you, by the way, life post-zero instead of life post-vend. Life post-vend. Yeah. Yeah, I think I had always mentally uh, envisioned having a break at some point. And I think when vend was in its crazy years. Break or breakdown? Uh, uh, well, probably one than the other. Hopefully in the right <laughs> order. <laughs> um, I, I kind of envisaged vend taking off and IPOing and then taking a year out and figuring what I wanted to do next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and actually, when I decided that my time at Vend was kind of coming to a close after about six years, I was quite intentional about what I wanted to do. And I, I engineered about a six-week holiday, which was nice. Mm. And it's nice to have that time in between where you're not thinking about one job and you're not thinking yeah. about the next job. Most people don't do that. They don't give themselves any time between jobs. And it's like context shifting, man. You're like, it's tough, right? You know, you've got to give yourself a bit of space. I think so, as much as you can. And so, um, so that worked out quite well. But then... You know, I joined Zero at the point when it had about 1,200 people and a different type of growth, but it was still a pretty intense five, five and a half years. And so by about three or four years into that, I was like, okay, I think I want to do about five or six years as well. And then I definitely want to take a bit of a break. Yeah. And, um, you know, Vend had exited and I had a little bit of um, a nest egg that I could draw on. And so I intentionally said, oh, I'll just take a bit of a career break. I'd spoken to some people that had done it. They gave me a lot of advice about, you know, make sure you take at least six, six months, make sure that yeah. you don't commit to any work. And um, and that's kind of what I set out to do. Uh, I It happened that we engineered a four-month visit to Wanaka with the family and we put the kids in school. And 
I was able to kind of step away from work because I spent most days up the mountain. Yeah. With a little hip flask of whiskey. And I'm surprised you came back, man. I was like, oh, that's it. We've lost another one down south. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit of an experiment to see if that's a place that we'd like to live. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed getting my ski game on and having the kids, uh, you know, improve their skills as well. It's a nice place to be in winter. Um, mm. I think I always kind of imagined engineering a career break in summer, but the winter worked out because it's a great place to spend. I think in the end, I missed the beach. Yeah. I missed uh, surf and waves, and and I think it's a beautiful place in summer. A lot of people love to spend summer there, but I, I realized that Auckland was my home. Yeah. Um, I, Auckland's probably about a smaller city as i can live in as well it's, yeah. it's it's amazing to have places like wanted to go visit but i felt like i was missing home and this was my home and so um i concluded i wasn't going to live there um yeah. but i met a lot of people who had moved there and were moving there to work remotely and were really enjoying the lifestyle and so it's it's very attractive but it was uh, yeah it was great but i interesting when i came back to auckland and so on that discussion about career break you know, really good advice. Don't think about anything. Don't make any plans. Give yourself at least six months, <laughs> but two months in, you're like, oh, now what? Yeah. You know, it's it's quite a strange feeling to have thought about something for a long time, uh, actually do it, launch into it, and then it's like stepping off a plant, right? There's a great unknown. So well, what am I going to do now? Yeah. What, what are my plans? And I, I think I wanted to make myself uncomfortable like that because... Do you have an overactive brain? Like, does you are you able to switch off even when you are working? Uh, I probably, I'm an active relaxer, so I yeah. have to, I'll go for a run or I'll go up a mountain or I'll go surfing. And so, um, and, and usually about 20 minutes into a run, my brain sort of switches off. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was interesting that I was wrestling with, am I, am I, uh, itching to do something because I'm just recovering from having been busy for 12 years Yeah. or is this just how I am? And actually, you know, do I need to get on with finding what it is I want to do? And so... A few things, you know, kind of gave me permission to just not do anything. My my wife had been working in real estate for a number of years and not really enjoying it because her background and her heart was in TV and she got a great job at TBNZ as a commissioner. Yeah. Um, so she went back into full-time. What's a commissioner? Oh, so she's responsible for um, uh, produce, finding and producing locally made content. Okay. So one it. of she's responsible for Shortland Street. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I've been watching a lot of Shortland Street. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen an episode. It's a really good show. It's still going. <laughs> and um, I, I, in a way, it's like she's she's almost like a partner at a venture fund. They're yeah. responsible for filtering through all of the kind of scripts and ideas and creative things going on in New Zealand, helping them get funded and helping them get made and put onto the air. And um, and and yeah, her, she's her background's in comedy, TV. She worked on The Office in the UK and The Mighty Boosh, and so she's oh, wow. yeah. she's back in a happy place, helping make locally made content. For me, that was I was like, oh, that's great. Okay, I'm going to be a stay at home dad for a couple of yeah. months and help out around the house and you know kind of switch roles after all those years of flying around the world. And yeah, <laughs> helping scale startups, jump out of planes, and jumping yeah. out of planes, um, throwing cash registers off buildings, yeah. and. Um, and then it was kind of the summer holidays. It's like, oh, nobody's really looking for anything around then. So I sort of gave myself till about January. But but yeah, I definitely wanted to um, feel uncomfortable, feel what it is that kind of motivates me to get out of bed and what I want to do next. And um, it, it, yeah, it's, it provokes anxiety at times, but it's also really, uh, really enjoyable. And I, and I think I've kind of landed on that in the last couple of months. Mm. And it, it just takes time. I think you've got to kind of embrace it you got to have enough space to be able to... Do you feel healed? Like, uh, I don't think I was broken. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, I mean, I, I so I'll give you some context from my mm. point of view, right? So I, last year, yeah. 
Nice. Straight whiskey. <laughs> does that to you. Um, last year, I had a company, a tech company, trying to acquire Talent Army mm. and like throughout big, big money. And the biggest thing that I couldn't get around my head was, well, what the fuck do I do next? You yeah. know, like, and it made me realize that unfortunately work was too much of an important thing in my life. You yeah. Know, and I needed to try and fix that. And so I went out and did some things to fix it. You know, I talked about it a lot on the podcast, did a psychedelic experience, you know, stop working, did a podcast, do all these things. Yeah. And it wasn't until that I slowed down a bit and started thinking differently that I realized that, man, I was burnt out for a long time and I was just able to carry that burnout more than other people could. So when I finally stopped, I went through a process of like physically having to remove stuff from my shoulders and yeah. realize what I could do going forward and do it differently. I think, yeah, probably. I probably feel... Um, yeah, healed is a good way of describing it. I, when you're in the thick of it, you don't really pay attention to it. Mm. And at the same time as Vend was blowing up, I also, you know, my family was... I described the analogy between my family and a high-growth startup as being very similar. When I joined Vend, I had a sort of nine-month-old daughter. Two years later, I had uh, twins. So we had three children under the age of three. Yeah. <laughs> Our family was scaling. Our... Um, <laughs> We were, you know, we we're running a cash flow negative. <laughs> we were financed by the mortgage in the bank. And, you know, I could sort of like see this pathway. We're probably in about five or 10 years. We'd, we'd come out the other side and we'd be in a better position. But we were, the headcount in our family was growing, <laughs> was growing and our costs were exploding. And all of this was happening in the startup at the same time. So this is very similar. And so both of these things were happening. And I, I really appreciated the opportunity to go and, a visit overseas on behalf of a company and establish a foothold. I, I spent my kind of teenage and uh, early twenties traveling and yeah. paying for it out of my own dime when somebody was like prepared to fly me somewhere, and <laughs> go yeah. do it for business. And I was like, this is incredible. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it, but it's also very taxing, right? You, you're traveling, you're, you're working 24 hours a day. When you're traveling, you get home, your my wife was looking after the kids all week and then it's okay you're on now you've got three kids under the age of three that you're looking after all weekend and then you're mm -hmm. back in the office with jet lag the next week and you just kind of do it over and over and it you don't really know any other way so you just kind of live it and experience it but i think i think it probably does catch up with you and i think uh by the end yeah i probably wanted a bit of a break from that or or i'd say definitely through COVID, i started to um like a lot of people i started to find a bit more balance yeah I think I was like, actually, I don't have to be in the office every day. I don't have to miss dinner every day. Uh, I, I can be uh, effective without being on 12 yeah. hours a day. Yeah. Um, and I can create a bit more balance between physical activity and mental activity. And so... Because your job at zero was huge too, man. Like It wasn't like you, you jumped straight out of one fire into the next in terms of like taxing physically and emotionally. Yeah, yeah. I, In a way, I... Um, I felt like it was. Uh, I felt like it was going to be more cushy because it was a bigger organization. You, know I mean? <laughs> you were hoping it was. <laughs> I, was I was like, I've just been. When I finished at Vend, I was like, okay, I went. I joined Vend when it was just born and there was two of us. And it was, you know, but when I left, there was two hundred of us. And at one point, we got to almost three hundred. And let's actually let's start there, right? So let's tell yeah. that story because I've heard the story over beers a few times. I've heard it from five or six different people about the early days of Vend. You know, and I hear origin stories all the time. Some really good PR-driven origin stories on the podcast, <laughs> and some really honest stories. So, yeah. like, because because you were first employee event, right? Yeah, I think I was on the payroll before Vaughn and Mel were. Yeah. Um, How did it all come about? Yeah, I. 
I mean, how far back do you want to go? All I wanted to be in my 19-year-old self was playing music for a living, and that's what I did. I, I went over to the UK, and I, I played in bands, and I, I mucked around, and I, I kind of did a bit of IT support behind the scenes because I figured I probably needed something to fall back on yeah. and the music doesn't work out. And and when I came back to NZ, you know, all I had in my CV was uh, IT support for a point-of-sale company in Edinburgh, which is like in the late 90s. And then um, I'd been working for a live music company running all their systems and websites and everything. It was an amazing job. Our offices were backstage at the Brixton Academy. I'd hang out at lunchtime watching Tool Soundcheck. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was pretty cool, yeah. but it paid nothing. And so when I got back to NZ, I was like, this is kind of, it's 20, just con 30. It's like, okay, this is the first point where I'm like, what am I going to do now? And we got married and had a... a so your a, career a started job. at 30, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I trained as a physiotherapist, if you can believe it or not. I that's, that's good for me to know because I'm recovering. Yeah, free, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's got something wrong with them, which, yeah. is, which is... And it's really hard to fix people. And at the time, I was working with computers because I was audio engineering and I was, uh, you know, reformatting computers and using 8-track recording. And it's, like, oh, it's much easier to pull a computer apart and fix it yeah, <laughs> than it yeah. is a person. And talk to them. And yeah. they get paid more as yeah. well. And so... Um, and every time you meet someone, they don't ask you to fix their computer. Mm. <laughs> But if you're video, they ask you to fix their neck. And so, um, so yeah, I kind of pivoted into IT, but I was playing music most of the time. And, and I happened to be the one that managed the band and managed the band website. And at, at this time, we were kind of on MySpace when it was really early and would go and play a gig. And, and people would show up because they'd joined our MySpace page. And I kind of joined the dots between that and thought, holy, there's something in this. Mm. Uh, when I came back to NZ, I was doing uh, consulting and contracting for a few clients and I got to the end of my first taxi. I'm like, I'm going to get audited <laughs> unless I... What do you mean by consulting? What were you consulting to? Web development, yeah. um, front-end web development. Yeah. I kind of turned that into more... Um, I realized I wasn't a very good software developer. I was yeah. like, okay, building HTML tables in an email marketing campaign <laughs> <but> <laughs> to install a system. I was sort of at the limit of my ability. Um, and I started working for a PR firm who was moving into social media and I kind of brought those things together. I was like, actually, I think I'm better at taking the technical stuff and actually working out how to message it and reach an audience. Yeah. And I was, uh, my brother got me into zero. He had a retail business. He, um, he actually bought the master franchise for T2 here and opened the first store in 2008. Great year to start a... Nothing bad happened. Nothing bad <laughs> happened in 2008, but I yeah. helped him set up the till system. We went to Australia and trained on it. It was like a $50,000 till system running off of Windows NT computers with a head office machine that we had to put in the cupboard because you had to have a head office machine, even though we were one store. And at the time, we were using Zero for accounting. It's like, this is crazy. Zero is so easy, so user friendly. Why are we still using a point of sale system like this? And like literally six months later, through the Zero, newsletter and they said oh we've got one of our first add-ons joining the add-on marketplace as they called it back then and it's a point of sale system i was just like okay how funny that you ended up running the marketplace at zero <laughs> years later and you found your first job at van yeah via the marketplace i still have the email I, i've i've used it in um slides at keynotes at zero cons yeah. just talking about that journey as a like zero was a light bulb moment for me I tried all of the uh, software cash management, accounting software solutions, and like, you had to know double entry accounting to figure out what the hell you were doing. Mm. The first time I used Zero, it was like money coming in and money going out. It's like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then I, I looked on uh, online and people were raving about it on Twitter. It's like raving about accounting software. <laughs> people rave about things on Twitter? It's like, it's, this is 2009. People <laughs> 
this is, you know, back when Twitter was kind of new and interesting. Yeah. And accounting software was like, why were people falling in love with accounting software? Mm. It's so boring. And at the time I was consulting with a um, advertising agency. We were doing email marketing and I discovered MailChimp. It was like email marketing, boring, pedestrian, but incredibly fun to use. This little monkey that would pop up and give you tips. Um, I tried to set up Magento for a client. It was a nightmare. And the last time I did web development. And then I found out about Shopify and immediately regretted using Magento. And it was the same deal. These these almost kind of consumer uh, brands building business applications that were fun and easy to use. And and they all worked together, right? Mm. You could you could connect MailChimp to Shopify. You could push time tracking into zero. And you could effectively build for a small business this um, ERP system that was fun and easy to use, was low cost, and would give them the same kind of a power of a, a SAP yeah. without them having to pay for it. And so I, I just kind of got interested in that space generally. So what was the email or the phone call to Vaughn then? Yeah, well, I, I heard about um, I heard about Van through the newsletter. I, I, I'd looked around at jobs at Zero, but they're all in Wellington. There wasn't really yeah. anything going in Auckland. I think I, I immediately sent it to my brother. I said, we, we should get this. Or what a shame we didn't have this a year ago. And I sent it to about three people. And... Um, and then I think I just uh, emailed him through their help center. I assumed it must have been a company with like five people. It looked kind of legit, had US dollar pricing. <laughs> Turns out it was just him working on it part time. And and I just said, um, I think this is a fantastic idea. It's kind of like the idea I had, but didn't have the ability to actually go and execute. Mm. I'd love to help you out if and when you guys are looking at growing and, and whatever capacity that is. And he got back to me pretty quickly. And, and uh, I think I just, when caught up with him a couple of times, I just kind of asked him about his business, what they're doing, told him some of my ideas. And and I just said, like, I, I don't know if you're hiring or if you're growing, but I'd love to get involved in some way. And I, you know, I wasn't even talking about price or role or title or anything. I just said, I'm, I'm freelancing and I have a bit of time in my week. And so we could probably find a way that I can help you out a bit of the time. And that was probably late 2010. And then early in 2011, we had another meeting. He's like, yeah, it's like things are getting busy. I'm, I'm trying to do everything. I'm trying to write code and manage customers and deal with support. I said, well, I used to work on the support desk for a point of sale company. <laughs> and I've got about 20 hours of the week filled for kind of consulting, which pays me reasonably well. How about I come and work for you mornings for 20 bucks an hour? Like it was literally that. It was kind yeah. of what's the absolute minimum cost so that you can give me a try and I can give you a try. And I just went there every morning picked up all the support tickets, answered all the sales queries and started to poke around on the website, the blog and um, kind of took that stuff off of his plate so he could focus on building software. And, uh, you know, within about three months, it was evident there was more than two people could do half time. And I think I went in full time at that point and he kind of gave up his consulting work and went in full time. But it was still a good four or five months after that before we raised any cash and actually started growing the team. Mm. But it was very loosely defined. It was just I'll kind of do the customer stuff, yeah. You know, custom marketing, uh, customer success, sales. You do the sort of engineering and product, and then there's a lot of crossover in the middle. You know, I couldn't support something he had to do things, and it kind of grew from there. I think we we gradually realized that we needed somebody who actually knew how to do sales <laughs> properly. Yeah. So we hired our VP sales. Um, JC John Christoph, yeah, who, um, whose number I 
I have. Yeah, whose number, who I thought was calling me when you phoned. <laughs> <laughs> I get so many calls from France yeah, and they just yeah. speak, and I speak French and, so, and I replied back to them saying, yeah. sorry. This I'm, is the unsexiest <laughs> French accent. <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I think the unsexy ever. Australian guy with the unsexy <laughs> French accent, yeah. For people that know JC, he's a, he's a good looking rooster and yeah, he's French. Yeah, 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 he really is. He always smells great too. Yeah. Um, and and then yeah, about six months after that, it was kind did of. Did you? When did you know though? Right. So when did you know Ven? Because I, like, obviously I approached Ven because I wanted to work at Ven just because there was something I saw in Ven that I was just like, oh, you know, like that for me feels like a place I, w- I need to work at and I want to work at. But when was the moment for you? I was as soon as I saw it. I, I think I'd had a couple of failed attempts at entrepreneurialism. Um, I. Uh, Sometimes I get an idea and I think I should go and do that idea. And then I see that somebody's already done it. I think, well, the next best thing is to <laughs> is to go and help with the thing that's already been done. Um, my, be, if you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> yeah. And and I um, that that failed spectacularly once when I imported half a container of bicycle lights back to New Zealand. One of my first ventures when I moved back, I was cycling around London in the middle of the night, uh, trying to you know indicate turns going through like elephant castle roundabout in the dark with buses surrounding me trying to let people know where i was know where i was going and almost dying i thought why doesn't somebody do indicators on a bicycle so like, how would you do that start drawing it out and then i saw one of those inventor shows about a week later where somebody had invented bicycle lights that had indicators on them and i just kind of called them and went down to see them in richmond and said you guys have a license for this in australia i'm moving back there and they're like no i said okay well i'll, I'll buy half a container and get two years <laughs> license and i brought them home not really any idea how to sell products or get how, distribution. How much did you have a container of bicycle? Oh, it was nothing. It was like $30,000 or something like that. I suppose mm. that was quite a lot back then for yeah. me. Um, and then I got home and then I realized that all the distributors were locked up by existing supplies and nobody <laughs> wanted them. And also they were kind of big and clunky. And most people want small bike lights and it was a bit of a novelty. In the end, I just sold them on TradeMe and online and over the course of a couple of years got rid of them all. It was a lesson for me in, in um, marketing because it was like I believed in the product. So I thought that there had to be a market for it. Turns out it was a niche market. <laughs> Just because I believe it doesn't mean there's a market for yeah. it. At the same time, a good friend of mine actually launched a, a business selling Ugg boots into the UK. Um, not because he wore Ugg boots or liked them, but because he ac- had access to the manufacturer and he saw the Google search trends in the UK spiking in Ugg boots. And this is back in the early days of Google when you could get onto number one yeah. ranking with a few well-placed backlinks. and. He bought a container of Ugg boots, set them up in his garage in Tauranga, and within about three months, he was selling $200,000 of Ugg boots wow. <laughs> every month. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So you're better to kind of go for the thing where there's a market. Yes, supply and demand. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so when I was using Zero, I remember thinking, oh, you know, I'd worked in point of sale. My brother's point of sale was terrible. I bet somebody could do this for point of sale. Oh, I'm not a developer. It was one of those ideas I just kind of mm. parked. And so when I saw it, I was like, okay, I think there's something in it. I think it was... Their marketing was kind of good. It looked nice. They had, you know, Rowan Simpson and Southgate Labs were helping with the design and yeah. on and others. So they made a really good polish, but there wasn't much going on in terms of brand. The blog was pretty dry. Um, and did, and you, I, did you know you wanted to be a marketer at that stage or were you just trying to figure out you would like, I could do lots of things? Yeah, I think so. I think it was, a. I had been doing it. I'd moved from tech into kind of PR and comms and marketing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd spent years trying to play in bands and showmanship (laughs) and getting an audience and all of that stuff. But I'm not a classic marketer by any means. I didn't train in it. I only had to learn the four Ps later on. Um, But I I could see the opportunity to connect with the brand and an audience in a way that wasn't being done. And I could see that companies like Xero, 
Shopify, MailChimp were doing that. And most B2B marketing back then was like stock photos of people high-fiving each other over whiteboards. Like, yeah, and explain a video. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it didn't, it didn't represent the emotional motivation of the people that were quitting their day jobs to start breweries. In fact, I remember one of the first case studies was um, uh, the brewer down in Wellington. Um, Parrot Dog. Parrot Dog, yeah. yeah. And yeah. He was an accountant who quit his job to start yeah. a brewery. I was like, this is amazing. You know, why aren't people talking to people in a language yeah. that they can relate to? And, and and what a fantastic opportunity to do that for a point of sale because point of sale is boring. Like, literally, POS, piece you, of shit. You definitely were responsible for creating a culture of doing things differently, right? And a lot of that was in the early days was through fun mediums like video and just doing crazy stuff, right? So yeah. Was that was that strategically planned from you? Or was that oh. you just were like, this will be fun? It's much strategy as there is in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess we kind of knew what we wanted to be like and and where we wanted to go and and then we would just try a lot of things to see if it would work. Um Some of the big ones for me that I remember uh is that um well I enjoy, I joined Venn because of the wear what you want mm. video. Like I I remember being in recruitment wearing a suit every day thinking, What the fuck do recruiters wear suits for? Like and I was having this debate with my boss about like we shouldn't wear suits anymore and then so she, an Australian CEO, said, No, you have to wear suits and I went, Okay, and just didn't tell her and we stopped wearing suits the next day and just wear t sh- t shirts and jeans instead. And then the Venn video came out and I was like, Like, it should be. Who cares what you wear? Yeah, I think a few things that probably fed into that. One was, um, you know, as a small company on the other side of the world that was, you know, couldn't afford phone support, couldn't be on the ground, couldn't serve our customers. We could be kind of abstracted and removed from them. Mm. And so, part of our early thinking around this was like, how do we create an emotional connection between our customers and us in a scalable way? And sometimes it was little things like on our support system, having profile photos with a green background. Yeah. So then when you're talking to someone, it's not just a robot, right? It's actually yeah. a person, you know who they are. Um, a lot of it was like on our website, making people, sure people knew who we were and what our mission was. And I think video was a sort of, this is the early days of YouTube as well and, and brands creating incredible videos that got viral reach like the Dollar Shave Club and uh, Lonely Sandwich. And so we- And you, but you guys jumped out of a plane and paid for something on PayPal while you were skydiving, well, we and then the CEO of PayPal then sent a um, all like a message to all his team saying we do we need to yeah. be doing shit like this. It's, it's just like we didn't have a lot of budget, <laughs> but we we knew we could be creative and probably get on the radar of people. Yeah. And and those videos, and we never got a video that had like twenty million views and you know millions of followers. But I think they got in front of the right people at the right time. Yeah. And a lot of them we just we just cut ourselves. I mean, I had an SLR camera and I'd just shoot things and edit it. That video, I think we we got an opportunity to partner with PayPal. We went and launched with them in the states. Which, by the way, you know, as a kind of fan of technology, a fanboy, I was like, oh my god, I'm working for this. Small tech companies, you know, we've invited to go to the States. We did a launch in Silicon Valley and we, mm. you know, we've got all these kind of big companies working with us. And then we just just leveraged that as much as we could. They were kind of looking for ideas and, and we said, oh, we've got a customer who does a skydive school. Vaughn's like, can you give us 20 grand to go and <laughs> shoot something? And then we were on a plane the next day and I took my camera <laughs> and we just set it up and filmed ourselves and we got them to do the GoPro video of the shot. And I was cutting it in the airport on the way home. <laughs> Um, in the lounge, just like here we go. I think this is good, and it was done two days later. So there wasn't, there wasn't really a script or a lot mm. of thought. It was just like, okay, I think we can 
do something that will get noticed that kind of talks about the problem, but also has it injects a little bit of fun and just fucking do it. Just fucking do it. Yeah. And a lot of the early content was like that. A lot of the early thinking is we'll try things. It seems to get a bit of reception. We'll try another yeah. thing. And it was very much about um, partly, I think, just trying to cut above the noise, trying yeah. to get a little bit of attention for us as a small upstart and a, you know, in a large global market. I think partly it was to put a sort of human face on who we were as a brand and a company that, you know, we're not a stuffy uh, till software from the 1980s. We're yeah. kind of interesting and we get you and we love retail. Um, young, and, re- young renegades of the like software world. Yeah. right? Because point of sale was really antiquated, like old school tech, you know, it was like ERP system. People hate it. Yeah. It's like the fax machine of the uh, you know of the retail world yeah. it's like this thing sucks you kind of want to, i mean touch screens had to be robust because people wanted to hit them because yeah. they hated them so much so the user on ipad was kind of novel at the time and so i think it was just trying to take a kind of consumer lens on a on a b2b application and seeing if that would resonate and trying to differentiate ourselves on the color on the tone of voice uh, we always had to walk a line, right? We didn't want to be silly about it. We didn't want people to feel like we're just goofing around for the sake of it. We always had to kind of bring it back to the core mission and the focus. But Didn't want to get your recruiter in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a stream of consciousness, actually. Yeah, that, that was one. hashtag F-bomb-gate. Was it F-bomb-gate? Yeah. I mean... So let's, let's tell let's that story quick. That. Yeah, so, okay. So we, 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 was it was a BP marketing role? Mm. I think it was. This was... Um, this was about 2014 or 15. Yeah. So it was, a, it was like a senior marketing role and you were, you were quite passionate about writing the copy yourself for the ad. Normally we would write the copy for the ad. Yeah. And Kirsty and I were like, yeah, well, go for it. You write great copy, you know, like. And so you wrote it and we just, well, I published it <laughs> <laughs> under my name. Yeah. Yeah. And, it all happened quite quickly. Um, and then Twitter started yelling at us. So uh, this was about the time when Bend was kind of growing towards 300 people and and trying to think like a big company and actually like in reflection the fact that we had to kind of pair back and scale back was probably a good thing at a good time because it felt like it was getting a little silly yeah a little out of hand and it is really interesting i mean we will park that conversation for later but the fact that the whole tech industry is going through it now i felt like we had a sort of taste of that in 2015 Mm. and it definitely colored some of my approach to funding growth all of that since um but back then it was like it was quite a lot of easy money. Every year we could raise cash, go faster, spend it, go faster. And that's what our investors were asking us to do. And as part of that, you know, we, the leadership team, one of the rare things about Vend, I think, is that the core leadership team kind of stuck it out for a good four or five years. There wasn't a lot of turnover. I, I managed to kind of grow into the role. I think JC had experienced sale and he stayed as a CRO for a long time. We brought in Sherard, who was an incredible chief customer officer and he'd had experience at Hootsuite. And there was a very, very tight, very core leadership team and we got to a point where we were like, well, you know, a company of 500 to 1,000 people is going to need more experienced people. So let's get a VP sales. Let's get a VP yeah. marketing. Get you off the tools so you can kind of think more strategically. I'm like, oh, okay, I better get somebody really big and, <laughs> and, and important and serious. And so I'm like, what do I need? And I just kind of sat down one day and in 30 minutes blurted it out. And I think I put it in the F-bomb there. It was like. And I, th- I think you wrote, I think the quote was, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, something, something, vend, and it's an and it's a fucking awesome place to work, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, it was an adjective. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't the verb version of it. Yeah. I wasn't insulting anybody. It was just me. Oh, I didn't think it was obtuse at all. Like, and and we used like we we mentioned just fucking do it before JFDI at vend was uh, it wasn't it wasn't just fucking do this, Nick. <laughs> Drink that whiskey. <laughs> yeah, it's not the imperative version of no, uh, yeah. JFDI. It was if hey, you've got a good idea. Yeah, just and fucking do it. 
Yeah, and, you know, I do think, certainly in the early days of a startup, you don't ever think things too much. Mm. As, as you get larger and um, corporates get larger, right, that you tend to uh, worry about the risks more than you do the opportunities and you tend to overthink things. And I think one of the challenges as you're, as you're going through that journey, going from just a few of you to, you know, 50 of you to a few hundred of you is that, you can kind of stray from that early mm. slightly recklessness risk-taking mindset and and that and, you know if that's your passion that's what excites you sometimes you, you need to find it again and so i um so i liked writing i like writing i like the process of it and so yeah technically people could write blog posts or could write um job descriptions for me but where it's something that's like really important to me someone i'm going to yeah. work with and sit next to on a plane it's like i want to kind of describe to this person what i'm looking for and i just yeah it was literally stream of consciousness i don't even think i proofread it i handed <laughs> it to you and then it went out and then it just blew up because there was a swear word in it yeah and then so i got people were attacking me all over town like because i wrote a swear word and that and i didn't want to throw my boss nick under the bus so, <laughs> so i was like uh, you know, I'm sorry that I. I think I yeah. stayed pretty quiet on. It. I was just like, I just let people figure it out themselves, and there was kind of two well, camps, it, wasn't there? It blew up in Australia first. Australia, yeah. because there was a guy that I had rejected a few times for a sales job, who, you know, I won't go into the reasons why, but it wasn't a good fit. Um, he was not a fan of me, yeah. And so he blew yeah. it up initially in Australia, and then off the back of that, it started blowing up. No, oh, and then one of the recruiter association guys, old school dinosaur of the industry, he then wrote blogs about it and blah blah blah, and then, and then we. It got like there was like three blogs written about it, and then so we thought, well, all right, well, we're going to have to respond, you know. Yeah. And then so yeah. I wrote a blog, <laughs> which we all sort of contributed to, which was something. And then off the back of my blog, some guy in Auckland, and I can't remember, he was the guy that ended up coming around for a tour in the office to see if we were um, whipping people, <laughs> you know, because we had just fucking daughters above you. Um, yeah, and so it's um, and then you eventually had to come clean and say, hey. Um, Poor little Troy and Wellington. Yeah, it wasn't uh, him. It was me. It was me. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did. Yeah. I think I did a mea culpa. I mean, so there's no such publicity as bad publicity, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and actually, in the end, um, in the end, it got on the radar of, of this <laughs> incredible hire <laughs> who almost joined the team. And I, it was one of the hardest things when he had to restructure and cut costs was have to call him and say, I'm sorry, because he was selling his house in the States. He was moving here. He was going to join, you know, he was looking for a kind of change in life, change of pace, and he loved, music, and he loved company. the company. Yeah, and, and this guy had been the CMO at Intel, Don yeah. McDonald, Donald McDonald. He'd, he'd managed like a $4 billion marketing budget. He'd been the CMO at um, Qualcomm as well. It's yeah. <laughs> like, you should be my boss's boss. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to work with you because you're yeah. a cool guy and I want to learn a lot. And, and I'm didn't not he a reference marketer. the swear word or something? Yeah, and he yeah. said it was one of the things, he was like, I like the cut of this company's jib. They seem kind of honest and transparent yeah. when I heard about it. And so, you know, I think you put it out there and you never know what's going to come from it. This is kind of my, um, you know, I think you've just got to take a few steps. There's there's two things I'll, I'll comment on that. One is um, I do wrestle a little bit with that whole sort of tech bro <laughs> Yeah. Are we being smart for the sake of it? Are we swearing because it's kind of, um, we're just trying to be different, but actually we're just being assholes. And yeah. so I'm always mindful of that. I always try to walk a fine line between those those two things. Um, Says on the podcast <laughs> called We <laughs> Fucking Love Startups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, I, don't, I don't feel vulnerable at all now. Don't worry, keep no, going. No, but I, but I do, um, I also believe in... Um, just kind of putting ideas out. This is creativity. It's like not everything's going to work, but yeah. you got to you got to try a few things. And and actually, to your 
original question, how did I end up at Vend? I think my end to Vend, ironically, as I said, I had a few entrepreneurial ideas that didn't fire. When I was living in the UK, um, I love comedy. I've, I've always kind of had a thing about satire. I love the onion. And um, I started like a, a version of the onion for the UK, which wasn't very popular. It was called the Ronson Rider. I just kind of wrote joke articles. And I just sat there for a long time and didn't do anything. I came back to New Zealand. I read stuff white people like. Oh, this is cool. You remember that book? Yeah, yeah. You know, they like go to festivals yeah. and they like rock bands. And um, and at the time, I was uh, experiencing New Zealand for the first time after living away for 12 years. And uh, when I grew up in New Zealand, I thought New Zealand is normal <laughs> and everything about New Zealand is normal. When I came home after 10 years, I'm like, why don't people wear shoes in winter? <laughs> <laughs> why doesn't anybody have central heating? Uh, why are we always kind of cutting down tall poppies? And and I was having catch ups with friends who'd also moved home, and we would we were kind of working through the I guess the the culture shift of coming back to New Zealand. I've talked a lot to people that move here as well. It takes you like six months to a year yeah. to get over the fact that there is tumbleweed most nights of the week. People won't let you in. People won't cars. let you in. Yeah. yeah. So I so I started writing a blog. It was kind of like stuff white people like, but for New Zealand, and it was called Kiwiana Rama. And one of the things I wrote about was our obsession with trade me. Um, I think I called it Trade Sheep, and it was kind of like a platform for selling farming goods. And I, so anyway, I backlinked to a Rowan Simpson article, and then he backlinked on his to mine. I said, oh, he read my blog. And then when I Because <laughs> he was blogging at that time. And so when I heard about Vend, I think I emailed Rowan and said, oh, you don't know me, but you read my blog. Can I get an intro to Vaughan? And so I think I'd hit him through the support website, but in the end, I actually got an email from Rowan. And, and part of, for me, it's that... The Venn question was like, I know this thing is, um, I can see the application of it. I love the user experience. I know point of sale is a horrible, horrible industry. But the fact that Rowan was involved, the fact that Sam Morgan was an investor, I was like, okay, so they're just exited from Trade Me and now they're investing in this and a few other things. I, I, I think there's a bit of a making of an ecosystem happening here, yeah. right? There's, what's going to happen if this kind of grows up and zero was starting to blow up at the time. And so... It, it was very intentional. I, it wasn't just the fact that it was a great product. It was like, I think it's backed by some interesting people and I'd like to meet them and to get involved and work with them. And, and I think... Pretty smart thoughts for a bum muso from... <laughs> that came yeah. back to New Zealand without any real strategy. You yeah, know, like, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But it's like, it's luck and, and um, just putting it out there, I suppose. And so, so yeah, I mean, having just created a dumb satire blog making fun of New Zealand was one of the ways I got into demand. Wow. Isn't it funny how, like, when you think back, right, the little nuances that happen because of your life, like the sliding door moments, you know, if yeah. you could if you could see your life in, in data visualization in terms of the opportunities <laughs> of how you went one way and, you know, could have gone the other way and the likes, it would be, I mean, it's a weird you know, Black Mirror episode there that we're, we're probably co-creating. Yeah, yeah. What did you put in the whiskey, exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, um, what would you hope that your legacy at Vend would be? Or what would you, what do you think it is? Um, I don't know. Here's a funny thing about marketers is that they're like chefs. They're really great at creating stuff, but when they get home, they don't like to cook. And, mm. and marketers are really great at creating brands and and helping create momentum for founders and, and reaching customers but they don't really like to talk about themselves yeah well this so, is this is a, a bad time to be on a podcast it is it probably is I, I don't know why i agreed to this frankly but <laughs> but um i guess my legacy i don't really think too much about legacy i'm more interested in what we achieved as a company you know yeah. rather than my impact on it um because that was kind of i like but you definitively have massive impact on vend Nick, you know, like the, um, 
the Venn rocket ship was initially in the early days to me was like you and Vaughn and Mel and, you know, and then it sort of grew out um, yeah. watching it. And so I think what you, what my, my experience of what you, you made Vend approachable mm. and that's approachable from an employment brand, from a customer base. You made like, have you ever read that book, Raving Fans? I haven't, no. Good marketing book. You okay. Know? Yeah. <laughs> As a non-traditional marketer, I should probably read up on it. <laughs> yeah. So that, like, that for me was like Vend always had raving fans. People just couldn't shut the fuck up about Vend. And I, I feel like the brand and the marketing and the, and the videos and the strategy and, and even just your approachability with when we were recruiting and when we were doing things and when you're in different teams, you're definitely more approachable. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I was just, I was having fun. And yeah. I think Vaughn was having fun. And we kind of couldn't believe our luck in a way that, you know, we had this thing that seemed to resonate with people, and and I guess we kind of wanted to share that, mm. and and hopefully other people would get that sense, and then that would help them choose where they want to work with us, or whether they want to use our product, would help them differentiate in the market. You know, don't forget, I'd spent my twenties, ironically, trying to create something in a band, right? Like this, the sense of being with a small group of people, having a purpose, trying to get an audience, trying to go and tour and see the world, and it's like that was. That was my defining purpose for a good 10 years. It turns out nobody wanted to buy music. Yeah. <laughs> or, so, or your music. Or my music. <laughs> yeah. Or CDs. You know, so yeah. this is between CDs declining and, and Spotify taking off. And we were making country music like six years before it became cool again. But strangely enough, I found it in a startup. Like I found that sense of there's a few of us and we've got this idea and it's getting momentum and and every and now it's going overseas Tra- traveling the world now we get to travel the world we yeah. get to tour with it and um making and music problems, videos making music videos <laughs> i mean, literally i wrote the songs on some of the music yeah. videos um just because i i couldn't be bothered <laughs> i was too tight to pay for royalty free music <laughs> i just used some of the shit from my back catalog and so um i think we like we were genuine and we were kind of open about that and i guess we tried to make make that part of the culture and part of the brand yeah and if that's uh, yeah i mean if that's a something that was still there and was was kind of continued after i left then then i think that's a great a great Le- thing legacy, to be part of yeah. legacy even um awesome and hey um yeah it's funny i, I loved a band room at Venn too like i love that you were like yeah let's have a band room <laughs> i'm still i'm still a music guys I'm still, <laughs> one day, uh, yeah, one yeah, day. I may be this big corporate cmo guy now but <laughs> deep down a lot of people software is a very forgiving profession to failed musicians yeah it, I, it, I honestly thought i said i think it was a kirsty or vp or someone um so after the vend exit or the shares you know were sold and the likes uh, someone said, oh, what do you think Nick's going to do now? And I was like, oh, I've tried to get Nick out of zero a few times and he, I don't think he's going to go into tech. I think he's going to go back to being a muso and he's going to release some album and we all have to see him in the street. Go, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll listen to every word. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I started this rolling midlife crisis when I hit 40. You may, you know, you've got a Porsche I'm 40, now, have I'm 43, you? <laughs> I drive a Porsche. I had a motorbike and I got hit by a truck. Yeah, yeah. so I... Um, uh, I bought myself an electric drum kit when I turned 40 because I played the guitar, but I always fancied myself as a drummer and I used the drum kit in the band room at Vend. And so yeah. I um, started learning how to play drums. Um, I eventually um, got a surfboard and took up surfing. I took a career break. You know, I was like, I'll probably take up crochet. I don't think I'll buy a sports car yet, but yeah. I'll, I'll get some version of it. And it's so, overrated, you know, if I'm honest. Yeah. So I think... Um, I don't think I'm ready to go back to music again. And, I, and part of the reason why is like, I kind of need musicians. Like what I've realized is that I'm not a good solo 
entrepreneur slash founder. Like mm. what I love about being in a band is being with other people and having accountability and having a reason to show up every day in the creative process. And it's kind of the same with entrepreneurialism, right? Like I, if I'm by myself, I'll, I'll just end up bumming around and chewing through social media or go for a surf yeah. or go for a run. But when you've, you're working with someone, even if it's one other person, you can get that kind of energy and that's like, okay, you do this, you do that. And I feel, oh shit, I better keep up because you're doing that. So it's the same. So I don't have a band yeah. yet. Um, but I did actually, um, I, I intentionally took a break from music when I came home and started a family. And I, I think I got out of music because I didn't want it to become a, a, a job, if you know what I mean. Like I wanted mm. to retain my love of it. I don't want to be 40 playing pub gigs, yeah. <laughs> John Farnham covers, you know, that kind of thing. And so for a long time, I, I wasn't playing. But I did actually start rehearsing, jamming again recently with um, Sam Gribben from Melodics, oh, yeah. Yeah. who I'd, I'd met when he finished at Serata and we'd kept in touch when he started Melodics. But actually, he was a friend of a friend. And um, Is that how you joined the board? Well, it's, the two things sort of worked in parallel, but it definitely <laughs> helped. I, I, I have this, yeah, I do have a weird journey into companies, I have to admit. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so Melodics is music software. It's like, yeah. it's, um, in fact... We hired an amazing new, um, uh, you know, marketing director, Sarah, who described it as Guitar Hero meets Duolingo. So it's got that sort of visual nice. feedback yeah. of Guitar Lingo and the gamification of Duolingo. But of course, their office is full of instruments mm. <laughs> and they have a jam room, a literal jam room. And so every month or so, less during COVID, more frequently during the winter, a few people just kind of get together and just jam there for a few hours on a Friday night. And, and that's a lot of fun. Like there's no playing music just for the sake of it no agenda we don't have to work out a set we don't have to go mm. and tour it has kind of rekindled my joy of it but um i don't think i'm ready to go back on the Fair road enough. Touring Fair enough. i always enjoyed your music when you guys used to play i like um no definitely something there mate maybe one day maybe, maybe one day maybe mm. one day i i met a guy recently who um who was good friends with the the head of the label for the band i was in and um there was one album that they released before I joined them that is still in the archive somewhere with Virgin Records. And it's the best album I've ever heard. I wasn't on it, but it was one of the things that inspired me to join that band. So if anybody knows anybody at Virgin Records who can get, get access out of the archives, I'd love to see it in the wilds. Unfortunately, he couldn't because he's no longer part of that. But um, mm. yeah. I'm sure um, the guys at Serato or Melodics will be able to. <laughs> Somebody will yeah. be able to. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, do, you have, do you have any music online and Spotify or anything like that that you. Oh, no. I don't think so. Not mine. Um, I What I've realized through that and through Vend and through Zero and others is I think the thing that, and, you know, back to what am I doing now, I just have this kind of innate desire to create stuff yeah. and to put it out there and, and that buzz that you get from seeing it reach an audience and seeing the reception of it yeah whether it was you know having made an album seeing my name on the sleeve and seeing people listen to me if it's not like tens of thousands of people it's very gratifying it's just mm. that kind of sense that you're making your mark on the world in some way yeah i think with software it was i mean it's, it's software right it's not it's not like saving lives or anything but there's quite a kick you'd walk into a shop somewhere in London and then you'd look behind the till and it's like, oh my God, they're using Vend. I still do it <laughs> That's now. That's cool. I still look, like if I walk into a shop and I can see they're using an iPad or whatever it is and I'm able to see, I turn around and have a look. I mean, it's it's light speed now and yeah. it, it looks still like the Vend app, you know, yeah. the iPad app, but yeah, yeah. still I, cool. Yeah, and I think it's that same sort of, I don't know, that same drive, that same mechanism, right? Mm. You, you have this creative bent, whether it's software, music, art, whatever it is, I think... I just found within software you could you could realize that same sort of creativity in a scalable way with something that people 
had to buy. <laughs> mm. How do you, like, so as someone who is a like marketer who learned on the job, right? How do you do that? And what advice would you give to someone right now that's probably in a role in a startup now that's listening to this thinking, fuck, how did he do it? And Hire people smarter than you. That's, mm. that's always been my thing. Um, you know, figure out what you're good at and what you're passionate about and then find people that know a lot more than you about the areas that you don't understand. And I, like, I think I was kind of new enough to be dangerous across a lot of different facets. I, I could instinctively... I knew how to translate complicated messages into language that humans understand. That was a big part of software marketing, right? And actually mm. part, part of that ironically came from my training as a physiotherapist and working in hospitals and trying to explain complicated things to patients because the doctors would give them all this babble and we'd end up spending half an hour trying to say what was actually going on. Um, so I think I kind of got that. I, I knew design and brand. I was pretty good at SEO and SEM, but not great. And so I just applied a little bit of that in the early days, but pretty quickly I'm like, oh, you know, I actually need somebody who's really, really good at search marketing. And and we got very lucky and we found Francois, yeah. who was one of the best growth marketers anywhere in the world, and certainly in this side of the Pacific. He's now running growth at Canva. Canva yeah. Um, awesome guy too. Amazing, right. amazing guy. Great basketballer. Great basketballer. <laughs> also got that amazing French accent. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of French people at Fan. For some reason, we attracted <laughs> yeah. all the French tech talent and interns as well. There was French interns there for a while. In yeah, I think that's or... right. We did. We, yeah. we 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 drew on all the talent we could at the, the lowest price we possibly yeah, could. They were just the mesmerized by JC and <laughs> yeah. And so um, yeah, I mean, I knew a lot about brand and and creating videos, but it got to a point where I couldn't do it all. And I you know I, I got to work with Simon Pound on creating a video for us. And then after about six months, I'm like, do you want to just come and do it full time? And so so I think. You have to be prepared to sort of scale yourself. And the best way to do it is to find really smart, really talented people who can compliment you and you can mm. learn a lot from them, um, which means recognizing your own strengths. I guess just like reading a lot and learning a lot, mm. um, but also not being afraid to ask for help and, and not try to extend yourself into areas that you're not comfortable and experienced in. Do you, did, you try, did you fake it though or were you vulnerable in those days because if you had have asked me when I was walking around van and chatting to people and if Nick had been a CMO in three different companies before I would have said yeah definitely you know like it felt like you always knew what you were doing yeah I mean I guess I felt in the early stage of a startup everybody feels kind of like an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs mm. are always figuring it out as they go along and we all kind of were and um like I guess I was lucky to have an amazing guy in Vaughan who trusted me and, and backed me and we were amazing to hire some people that were really good at what they did like JC and I learned a lot from him especially about slide decks and spreadsheets yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I'd never really used much before um, but I was also prepared to give up things that I wasn't good at you know so I could focus yeah. like I wasn't precious about holding on to sales I knew there were people that were better at it than me I knew that I couldn't do customer support and sales I think I could do customer support better but I really loved the marketing side and so I was quite happy to see that go to somebody else. And so I never had much ego about it. I guess I always felt like I was kind of having to prove myself all the time, but also having the freedom and the opportunity to do that. And part of that was, you know, having the trust of someone like Vaughn. Part of it was, I guess, self-driven motivation and pressure to continue to level up and perform. Um, and then part of it was, a lot of it was luck. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a good product at the right time with the right kind of tailwind for the right number of years that we were able to learn a lot on the job. And, and a lot of it was, there was classic marketing that was still relevant for yep. bees, as I talked about, but it was the early days of you could still goose your search rankings. You could still drive growth through the zero app ecosystem because there weren't that many. You, you could kind of 
establish partnerships with large companies because there weren't many out there. And so we, you know, a large part of it was kind of the luck and the momentum that carried us and then kind of figuring out what worked along the way. So, yeah, I was very grateful for that opportunity. But but you, you have to continue to evolve and level up as well. Yeah, I was a big marketing team at Venn for like size, like in terms of, and that's because like for the customers that was like that marketing was able to generate you know, for Venn, it was just phenomenal, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, we were, I guess the company roughly was a third sales and marketing, a third R&D and a third yeah. and everything else, which is not, not on, uh, which is pretty common. And then the marketing and sales spend was 50-50, except that, you know, marketing was mostly budget <laughs> and yeah. then a few people, but it did generate 95% of our business mm. inbound, right? We, we, we ranked well on Google, uh, we had great display advertising. We we had good strategic partnerships. And we had a really good direct digital marketing engine that drove a lot of the growth. Um, and I think, yeah, and, uh, arguably the challenge with that is that there are limitations to it, right? And so it took us a while to find other channels and fire yeah. them up. Um, but but it's certainly still a really important part of the business's growth engine. And and yeah, we were able to build a team that was really engineered around that funnel, right? How do we kind of attract people? How do we move them through the funnel? How do we retain them, build brand loyalty, tell them about all the new products and features? But yeah, I mean, a lot of that, how do you structure a team when you're going from two people to 20 people? It was, I mean, it was drawing on the experience of those that had done it before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Literally asking for org charts from the, the VP of marketing at Slack. <laughs> And and Andy Lark had moved to zero because there was it was kind of a freedom of knowledge sharing and and mm. if you're entrepreneurial and you're trying to figure things out and you're working with partners and there's not a competitive environment people are generally happy to help you with that yep. and so there was a lot of we would go down to Wellington and we would sit with the marketing team there that were twenty back when we were two and ask them how they did things and so a lot of that kind of growth and that knowledge sharing happened within the partnerships that we had and within the ecosystem. Um, and then some of it we just kind of worked out by ourselves, and some of it was just like you Google, oh, you know, yeah. what are the main functions of marketing team, and how do you build? What them? is marketing automation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you What did you realize when you went to zero? Like, what was the culture shock for you there, if any? Yeah, I um, I knew that I wanted to. I, I knew that I was kind of ready to leave Vend. I think. Mm. It had been an incredible six years, but I could see kind of what the next six years would look like and it wasn't necessarily going to continue to grow. And I felt like I still had a whole bunch to learn, you know, about, and I wanted to be surrounded by people that I could learn new things and, and mm. new experiences. There was only really one company I was interested to work at, which was Zero. I think I kind of kicked the tires and a few others, but I, 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 um, I think I, I heard that Andy Lark had stepped down and I thought, okay, well, maybe there's some opportunities in marketing. And I sent a tweet to Rod, I said, can we have a chat? I think I just landed in Singapore and um, I thought it'll be a few hours or a couple of days till he gets back to me. And it was like, now it's good. <laughs> so, oh, I'm just going to a six hour meeting. Can I, can I call you later? He's like, yeah, fine. And I got the blower with him at like, it must've been like 9 PM New Zealand time, but it was incredibly approachable and accessible. And I sort of asked him about what that means for the partnership. And then I said, oh, I'm thinking about doing something new. And he's like, and he was really receptive and really open to it. And, and he kind of made a few introductions from that point and then it evolved into the role managing the ecosystem, which I, you know, I, I think it was another example of great timing, but I, I guess I'd established relationships with Zero. I, I had Rod's DMs. Like, all of these things matter, right, in terms of your career. Yeah. It's not just, you can't just kind of finish. It's like, now what? You, you generally have a bit of a, a, a plan going into it. Um, and so culturally, I knew the company. I knew a lot of the people. I knew the space. I felt going from the partner side to the platform side would be a relatively 
kind of easy transition for me, but it was at a bigger scale. I, di- I didn't want to go back into a startup again. I felt like... Ready for the next level. Yeah, level I, felt, I was interested to see what it's like at a bigger scale. I mm-hmm. felt like if I went back to a 10-person company, I'd be the guy they were looking to for ideas. But I wanted to go to a 1,000-person company and learn a lot of ideas. Mm. And so that was kind of what I was looking for. But there was that little part of me in the back of my mind. is like, well, is this just going to be large and corporate and hard to get anything done? And so I thought, well, if I can last three months, I'll last a year. And mm. <laughs> if I can last a year, I'll definitely do three. And I ended up doing nearly six. Um, I guess the culture shock for me, I had to learn a lot of new stuff. So I'd, I'd come from a marketing background, but we had digital marketing. We had an engineering team, front-end devs, building the website, but I was responsible for a large engineering team and a product team. And, and it was like a massive learning curve for me, but really, really exciting. Um, the partnership side, I, I had a lot of experience of, and, and I was there was a marketing team of two, so I was able to kind of boost and grow that. Um, probably just the how to navigate getting things done in a large company was the big mm. learning curve for me. And, and Zero was figuring it out, right? It had gone to a thousand people pretty quickly, and then it was growing from a thousand to five thousand. Was it political? Five years. Political? More political? Um, I, I just think it was. There was just a lot going on, mm. like a lot, like the scope of the company. You know, we were approaching a million subscribers spread across five main countries, but like, you know, a hundred really. There was an accounting product, a small business product, adjacent products. Um, There was a tech team, a product team, a partnerships team. Mm. So we kind of spread all those things. Like there's no, there's no shortage of opportunities and it's really hard to say no to all of it. And, And, you know, at the time Rod was involved in the business and a super creative driven founder who wanted to do everything. And so... The challenge at zero was just there was so much to do and so much opportunity. It was hard to decide what to focus on mm. and then how to kind of get visibility for your area of the business and say, you know, actually, I think this is really important and I think this is something that we should back. And it, it what probably the surprise to me is what I thought I could get done in 90 days was actually more like six months to a year because it takes you time to figure out um, the term I've heard. I heard it on Succession recently. It's called the emotional architecture of an organization. It was... Um, he described how he's the only one that really gets that. And, and it's really true, right? How does this organization actually tick beyond mm. the budgeting process and the spreadsheets and all that? Like, how do you kind of get the things moving? The architecture, I like that. Yeah. And, and I didn't, and I joined at the, you know, the tail end of a budget process and somebody's company. So you got a team of 40 people. How many engineers do you want? It's just like, I don't know. I've just, I've just come out of three years at Venn where we've been running a flat budget. So I don't know, two, five, I'm not sure. Like I didn't have a lot of conviction in the early days about what we needed to do. I still have that or had that entrepreneurial mindset where, well, let's just get a couple of people working on it for three months. And if it works, we'll get a couple more people. And if it works, we'll build on it from there. I think in building better uh, strategic uh, financial processes at zero, they were trying to figure out, well, what does the future look like? What do we work on? How do we fund it? And then what do we prioritize out of the mix of all of these things? And, you know, you'd have like 20 strategic priorities and a hundred kind of lower level ones. And so it took me a full year to work out how all of that worked, what, what it meant to be a platform, what we really had to invest in and how we kind of prioritize in the business and then champion for it, like really advocate for it. And, you know, in a large company, there was a bit of a, um, like an arms race for resources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, it's like, I, I was like, well, I need a few engineers. It's like, oh, that's not ambitious enough. You know, we only want to fund things that are going to have a billion dollar ARR in three years. And so you need, we're only interested in things that have a hundred million dollar <laughs> initial investment. I'm like, oh, I don't need that much. Or if I get that much, I don't know if I can spend it to realize the result. And so 
but you know when you kind of when there are people who are experienced bankers and management consultants who are really good at putting the business case together you can get a little bit lost in the mix if you're yeah. not if you're not ambitious enough and so i never got to the point where i'm like i need 100 indigenous to do something but i'm like i think there's this thing we can do it's going to take us a few years we're going to lead, need at least 20 or 30 people and it's going to look like this I, was like, I can't promise you it's going to achieve that but i'm pretty confident based on the numbers but let's get started with 10 and see where we get to and so that for me was really interesting. I learned a lot about like how to how to build a business case, how to um, how strategic to get resources, and- strategic budgeting, how to finance, how to deploy capital, how yeah. to hire a team. You know what's good and what's not good about it. You know, by no means were they they were still kind of figuring out every budget cycle. But that was fascinating. I got to work with incredible ex-strategy people, um, strategic finance people, um, amazing product and engineering people, and, and like Zero has talent all over the world, right? Like, mm. I, Briefly, my boss was Kerry Goman, who, who led a billion-dollar business unit, Capital One Bank. And she was like, everything you'd imagine about an incredibly impressive, <laughs> polished, but really fun US exec. And, and I learned so much from her and how she built a team and how she ran that stuff. And so there was a ton of really incredible opportunities I got through that. Um, but in the end, it, it gets a little bit hard to get things done, you know, yeah. and so... It's just slow, slow moving, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of, I reflect on this a lot when I coach people through their careers. There's, especially young people, right? It's like, I need the title. I need to be management. I need to manage lots of people. It's like, this is what my career trajectory looks like. It can actually move you further away from the things that bring you joy. Mm. And and I don't, I don't regret it at all. I really enjoyed it. But there does get to a point where you're like, am I spending most of my days in meetings and signing off budgets and, and having things ghostwritten for me? And it's like, and at the end of that, if you really grind away it, you know, over the course of two years, you can achieve something. And when you achieve it, it can be huge. You know, when we we um, when we launched the app store, we we flipped from a um, a pure referral model to a kind of commercial pay to play model in the app mm. store, which I, yeah, I guess controversial, but in my mind, it was it was the only way that we could get Zero to take this part of the business seriously and drive mm. real meaningful growth for a lot of software companies that work with Zero, and actually literally put CAC dollars behind it and drive traffic into the app store. But it was a huge complicated program of work. And and it takes a long time to move that through and to get all the buy-in and get all the legal sign-off. But when you launch it, you got this platform with like millions of people on it, right? And so the reach and the potential of it is really still, Do you still get the t- same dopamine hit of launching something through osmosis like with a huge team underneath yeah you, yeah because i because i got to get up on stage at ZeroCon in front of three thousand yeah, yeah. and, and talk about it it's like it was like it was it was literally i remember walking out in london thinking i wanted to do this in a band yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i got to do it again i was backstage and they're doing makeup and you're doing rehearsals and stuff and this i mean they're accountants but they're like they're cheering and they they're party hard those accounts really hard it's yeah. like this is cool like this is really cool but it takes a long time to get there and i think um i started to miss it that more regular dopamine hit, you know, mm. you, you try to get um, closer to the action. You try to write your own blog posts or get involved in product planning sessions. But <clears throat> there's a bit of a risk that when you're a senior exec, it's like, oh, I just want to hang out with the designers and uh, <laughs> come I, up with concepts. And they're like, they're freaking out because it's like, what are you doing here? You're micromanaging. And, and it's, and they're worried, right? Because they're like, if you're in their business, well, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. I interview so many execs all the fucking time. Right. Who, they just they they would love to go back to doing what their little you know niche is, yep. and they fantasize about it. And they usually like the same probably fifty execs in New Zealand call me every three months, and they're like, "Oh, what have you got out there?" And I'm like, 
nothing for less than $250,000 pay cut that you're going to take or whatever it may be, you know, depending on what some of them are. Some of them, some of them you'd be like, they're fantasizing with it. What the yeah. fuck? Um, yeah. I worry about our country. But everyone, like so many people feel the same, but they become institutionalized or yeah. they become trapped. And so like, luckily for you, right, like you've had some exits and the likes and done pretty well and you, you're in this position now where you can come up for oxygen and say, well, what do I want? A midlife crisis. I've taken my family on an adventure. They, you know, I've dragged them back to Auckland. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've had the surfing accident. Yeah. I survived it. <laughs> yeah. So, what is it now that you like? Said, what is it now that you're doing? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. I, um, Do you want some more whiskey, by the way? Uh, yeah. Go on. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I can, I've got the whiskey sweat going on. I'm sure that you can take that out and post. Thank you very much. Um, I. You want a whiskey, Jonah? I, what I really, really um, enjoyed in the early stages of Vend, as we talked about, it's like, well, how the hell do you build a marketing team? What does it take to go to market? You, you're so deep in the weeds. You're so stuck figuring out all your own problems. You feel like you're an island. And then every now and then we would get to go and share ideas with others that were in the same boat. Um, Point Nine Capital, the, mm. uh, one of our early investors, they would host this meetup every year and they'd get everyone together. I was like, oh, I can't, I can't take a week out. Everything's really busy. Now let's do it. Let's do it. And you'd go, and you'd hear from all of their portfolio companies. Like, oh my god, it's like, I've got that problem too. It's like a huge group therapy session, yeah. and it was like, it was the best thing. And that's where I heard Bill Mikaitis, who was the the CMO at Zendesk, and then went on to be the CMO at Slack. And I, I, I got his email address, and I'd call him a couple of times after that. That's where I got his org chart and helped to design my org chart. And so. That was a huge a part of my development was learning from those that had been there before or that were in mm. the same boat. When Van started to get, you know, I guess a little bit larger and a little bit more noticed, people would come to me and say, I've got these problems, can you help me? And I, I really enjoyed helping and giving mm. back. And just like, it was never like, you need to do this, but it's like, well, this is what we tried and it, it totally failed, but but you could give it a go. <laughs> or I, you know, we, I wouldn't recommend that. We tried that, don't we do that. We tried that, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, but also at the same time, it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm forever amazed at innovation and the things that people can innovate around, right? There's just sort of limitless potential still. Even something you think that's been solved before, it could be solved again in a new and unique way. And I love meeting companies and you're like, oh my God, you've, you've come up with like a collar for cows. <laughs> Who would have thought about that? Or or you've a procurement management platform for enterprises or, or an internal legal system. Mm. It's just like there's, there's no shortage of ways to innovate. So not only do you, kind of help them on their journey but i just i'm naturally curious and i find that stuff really fascinating it's hard to do it when you've got a full-time job like part of the attraction for me part of the reason i i kind of was comfortable moving to a big company like zero was that like you know it was my dream gig right managing the developer ecosystem and getting to work with a lot of the early stage startups but you just don't have the time the mental headspace to really be able to help yeah and um and you know i was fortunate to be invited onto the board of tradeify when i was finishing up at uh, vend and then i joined the board at ambit kind of in my time at zero but that was about all i could have time for i didn't I, I, you know even with sam he's like i'll pay you to consult and do some marketing support for us like i just i don't need the money at the moment i don't yeah. i don't want to do it unless i think i can do it well mm-hmm. and so um what's kind of been nice since i stepped away and had more time is it's like and people are like can we catch up and pick your brain and you're like yeah <laughs> sure why not it's fun like I, I just enjoy the process of it yeah uh, it's kind of turned into one board seat. Some of it may become advisory. I've, I have, you can get very busy very, very quickly. And so, because you, you've actually got an accompany set up now, an advisory company. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, 
I started working with my uh, business partner, Rowan Alton. And, um, Rowan, one of the early Rowan engineers. Was the, yeah, probably the first front-end engineer at Van, probably, I think, yeah. And then went to Slack, did he? Yeah, oh. he went on to Slack. Um, so he was there for the first three or four years. He was employee yeah. number two or three, really, really early on. One of those developers that, you know, I remember sitting next to him, um, Gather the Gather conference that used to happen years ago, and it was sitting. It was only like twenty one at the time. I was sitting next to him while he was coding. It's like, is this guy in the Matrix? You know, just like the speed at which things was happening. It's like this guy is really, really good, and um, and and we kept in touch because he ended up marrying my sister, <laughs> and now he has a couple of my nieces. But he was at Slack, and I was at Vand, and you know, I was finishing up. So I was at Zero when I was finishing up at Zero. So I've been at Slack for a while. I kind of. I'm really enjoying it, but I feel like I need to do something again, be back on the tools. And so we were kicking around ideas late last year. There was a few companies- In your that, relaxing time that you were meant to be working. Yeah, relaxing time not meant to be working. Yeah. Um, and, and we said, well, why don't we just, you know, Slack offers a six week sabbatical for any of their team. You can just go and work on something. It's like, we've got a few ideas. I don't know if any of them are like game changing, but here's one that I think might have something. It's a problem that I have personally, because I've been using Xero since 2009. And, Back in 2009, when I was contracting two or three days a week and had a young child, we didn't. Cash flow was a real struggle for us, right? Mm. And our mortgage interest rate was 11. <laughs> percent And um, but what I found is, if I was consulting and freelancing, you know, I could claim some of that back as, as a tax deduction and claim it back on GST. Um, and zero was great if I ran everything through zero, but there were all these personal expenses that I had to get in there somehow in order to claim them back, and it would only be a few hundred bucks a month of tax-free reimbursals that I could get, but that was quite meaningful back then. And um, and I was using Zero Personal, if you remember, mm -hmm. and it was like, cool, I can mark this as an expense and send it to Zero, but then they shut that down. And I was using Pocketsmith, I said, oh, I can mark this as an expense, but it's kind of hard to get it out. And so I, I kind of jimmy-rigged the system using Zero and bank rules, but it was kind of painful and it was the slowest part of doing my GST returns. And so I, I said to Ron, well, we think that there's, Open banking creates opportunities, right? Because yeah. for those who don't know it, it's like bank data. The bank feeds aren't really a kind of um, advantage anymore. It's a commodity. And people can authorize access to their bank data, and that's created huge opportunities in the UK. Really, really amazing. It's quite early in New Zealand. We thought, well, we can get bank data. What could we do with that? At about the same time, GPT was blowing up, and we're like, well, what if you put unstructured bank data through AI? What could you then do with that? And I said, oh, well, if it can help me claim my home office expenses every two months. That'll at least save me 14 bucks a month on a zero cash book and maybe there's a product in it. And I spoke to my accountant about it and he's like, oh, this is a hassle. Every year chasing every client for that data, which they end up trawling through their bank accounts or looking through phone bills and it slows down the end of the financial year. I said, well, what if we could theoretically solve that for you? And um, it's not like the biggest problem they have. It's not the biggest need that most small businesses have, but pretty much everybody that's self-employed or, or small business has this, and pretty yeah. much everybody does it really manually. And so we just said, well, why don't we spend six weeks working on it and um, and see what comes out the back end of it. And and what I found was just like the joy of just kind of creating stuff. <laughs> like sitting, Back to the early days. Yeah, 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 just like sitting down at a desk, two people. It's like, well, let's see if we can get the bank data. Oh, shit, it works. Let's put a year's worth of bank data through the GBT API and tell it that this is a business expense. And then we put another year through and we said, now tell us if that matches. And it was like 80% of them it got straight away. It was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is exciting. And then the tools that are available now, um, you know, the ability to code in Vercel and deploy really quickly. We're using a front end called Tailwind, 
we weren't even like designing stuff. It was just like, I'd draw a table and then two hours later it would be live in production and we were testing it. And I think, you know, after the, to do that in a company like Zero or any large company or even a medium-sized company, it's like, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of engineers. It's, it's there's a lot more, it's not just layers, right? You've got existing customer data, you've got a lot of yeah. other things to contend with. And it was really fun just kind of going through that exercise of building and shipping something from scratch. And I think at the back end of that, we realized two things. One, this could be a product, who knows? Let's put it out there and see what people think. And we're, we're sort of on that journey now. Um, and, but at the same time, it's like this kind of, the ability to unblock innovation to help companies get moving, there's gotta be other people that need that. And yeah. so, you know, maybe we can kind of help businesses who are trying to move quickly and test ideas or want to grow or you know kind of need uh like fractional support as a cmo or a cto and so perhaps we can do one and get to work with some really cool companies to allow us to kind of keep working on our own product ideas and that's kind of where we're at and my hope is that you know i get to help other companies in that stage of growth that we were at and mm. you know, hopefully sort of pay something back because I just I love seeing companies thrive. I, I, the fact that there is now this kind of tech ecosystem in New Zealand, I think about back when Venn started, it's like, oh, you've got Sam Morgan and Rowan Simpson and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. I think there was a few other exits around that time. There's a whole bunch now. Like the, the industry has matured over 10 years. You're just thinking about the exits in the last three years, right? All of that cash is going to get recycled. Yeah. And it's not just the capital, right? It's all the experience. You've got all these people who have been through those scaled companies who are now able to help those next stage of companies grow and scale. And I think um, if New Zealand is serious about having tech as our number one export, it's just going to take a few cycles of that to get yeah, there. I mean, Silicon Valley has been doing it for like 70, 80 years. And and eventually you'll get a recycle of capital, a recycle of talent, the ability to kind of exit that will create huge opportunities for this country. And I, you know, I still feel very passionately about that. Yeah, I think it's, it is exciting. Like, And I think the government is starting to see that now that the precipice of like the ecosystem is flourishing now because we've seen a few different variations and waves or iterations of it now. And it's like... It's almost like a like when you throw a rock in a puddle, right? The rings that you're starting to see in the very edges now yeah. are, are the current time. Well, this concept, was it the three Bs, like the batch, the boat, and the BMW? This is like uh, New Zealand entrepreneurs, they sell out early and then they just go fishing. It's yeah. like I've never met a founder of a tech company who exited and went fishing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just too restless. Yeah. Like they just – they want to keep getting involved. I, I, um, I mean, Rowan Simpson was incredibly active in Vend and multiple other com- companies, and and he was still really, really busy. Vend, like he went Trade Me, Zero, Vend, Timely, like all the things. I, yeah, I had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about all these other companies now, and I'm like, man. But. Yeah, and I, I um, <clears throat> not New Zealand based, but uh, Jamie McLean, who was one of the founders of HubDoc, which Zero acquired for mm. seventy million dollars a few years back. He was at zero for 18 months exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then he went off and had his kind of six month sabbatical. And he's one of the guys that said, don't, work, don't do anything for six months. And then six months later, he's like, oh, we've, we've made a majority investment in a company called A2X, which is a New Zealand founded mm. company which um, connects e commerce into zero and has just, you know, blown up over the last few years. I was like, what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> you don't need to work again. Why have you bought a company? He's like, it's just like, it's my identity. My work is my purpose and this is what I like doing. Mm. And, and you know, I'm in a really great position to be able to do it. And so I think as, well, m- as, well, much, as, he, as much as he gave me the advice to not work for six months, the thing that I took away from the conversation is it's like most people want to do something next. 
I, I think you, I think if you are true to yourself that you've let your body and mind relax and then your your mind starts thinking and getting creative and getting excited again, then you got to listen to that too, right? Like you, if your mind's ready in the position now where it's like starting to connect dots and, and if I was to listen back to this podcast, you know, and think about the data visualization of this podcast, I'd be like, man, if Nick sees a trend, back that fucking trend, right? <laughs> Get Run behind him and jump into that because he's seeing it earlier, right? And so like... I, yeah, I mean, that's... That's very nice of you to say. Thank you, Troy. Pleasure. I think there's also a, a um, spreading your bets aspect to it, right? And it's like you don't know exactly what's going to work, but if you do nothing, you know that nothing's going to work. And so putting it out there is a big part of it, Yeah. placing a few bets. And um, and then you kind of look back on the ones that work. It's like, oh, that was great. But also there's a bunch. <laughs> well, we don't talk <laughs> about them. We don't talk about the ones that didn't <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah. Hey, um, we're, I, I think they're starting to play the Oscars music here downstairs to slowly wrap us up. I can hear a pianist, a pianist, a pianist <laughs> playing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so before you go down and join them um, and say, hey, I'm Nick Holdsworth, <laughs> musician. <laughs> I'm the guest of honor. Yeah. What, um, so one thing that you wouldn't have heard yet, because the season two's question now is not the what makes you happy question that we've been asking on season one, but we're now saying like if you were to if you were to give me one link to put in the show notes, whether it be a person, whether it be a podcast, whether it be a blog, whether it be a book, whether it be a cult, you know, whatever it may be, right? What's the one thing that you would be like, hey, this this did something for me. You should go and check it out. Ah. Uh. Um, it's probably Hobo Talk on Spotify, yeah. the band that I was in. Actually, the license in New Zealand doesn't feature the albums that I was on, but uh, the singer and his first album that was released on Virgin Records is still on there. And it's like one of the most beautiful records I've ever listened to. And I still listen to it, you know, every other week. What's the album called? It's called Beauty and Madness. So Hobo Talk, Beauty and Madness. Go, yeah. on, go and check it out. We'll put it in the um, – we'll have the album cover here, Jono. I love creating hard overlays for Jono. Yeah, um, and, and, and maybe if enough people listen to it, I can get the band down here for a tour and then I can actually get back into my music career. Yeah, we'd, I'd like that. I'd like that. <laughs> that'd, that'd be good. Do you don't do any crazy Vaughn challenges? Like, No, no. I, um, I always admire his ability to kind of put himself there and make challenges. I think um, uh, I didn't, I'm, a, I'm I didn't more of a quiet under the radar. I'll just like, I think I'm going to take up surfing and then I do that. Mm. I think I'm going to take up drums and then I do that. Um, I, I think I recognize that my being in a band, like I wasn't the front man. Yeah. I was the Svengali behind the scenes. And, um, and, you know, even founding a company or being part of companies, I quite like being the sort of, you know, the guy behind the scenes that's making things tick. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I don't have any uh, public statements of, uh, of what I want to get up to. Mm, no, well, I think, I think you are definitely the person that if, if a founder is listening to this now, right, and they are thinking about who, who they should they hire for employee one, I think the theme is you hire someone that's been smart enough to understand that there's a problem there that's connected the dots to say that I want to work at that problem and that may not have the skills and experience that you need particularly for that job, but because they've been smart enough to connect all those previous three dots, 
give them a job and get the fuck out of their way. Yeah. Right? And yeah. look at your career since, right? It's just been evident that you've just grown and grown and grown and grown. And now you've got that ability where you're going to be able to consult to companies to be able to give it back, to, t- to tick all the things that give you, you know, endorphin now, like helping companies, creating products, getting, you know, getting back to your roots and building something fast and, and hopefully yeah. not coding. And I think the best people, are, they're not obsessed over what they get paid they're not obsessed over their job title or what their specific responsibilities are they're just like i, I think this is amazing and i want to be part of it yeah what does it take in fact i think i even remember saying to Vaughn, like what are your problems and your pain points i think i can help with that rather than this is what i want to do and this is how i think i can help Vaughn tells the story i think he wanted to pay me to come and work at vend and <laughs> he doesn't <I> was... <laughs> there's actually there is one video on that note um and, you know, if anybody's watching this and they, they, they fucking love startups too and they want to get involved, um, I do think it's, it is about uh, just kind of like making yourself available and, and not overthinking too much about what it looks like or what the structure of it is, even if it's just like helping them for free to start yeah. with or, or providing them advice. And, and oftentimes, you know, people with larger corporate backgrounds who maybe think that they haven't got the right skills or experience to apply for that job in a startup can they actually add a lot but often startups they, they see risk on like big salaries and big hires right but they need a lot of help and so yeah. the more you can help them the more you can build that trust it could lead to something or maybe it doesn't but at least it's a good way to start the journey and there's one other video that we used to play a lot at van that always people would always comment and i related to it it was the when we talked about the first employee or the first follower you know that yeah. guy, the crazy guy that's yeah. dancing in the festival yeah. and he's by himself for about 30 seconds and you think he's nuts until one other person dances with him. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly everybody dances with him. And it's like that first follower turns them from a nut job <laughs> dancing by themselves into a festival into, an into a movement. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's me. Vaughn's no longer crazy. He's actually got a few people that believe in him. And, you know, I was really proud of my contribution, I guess, in, in helping that company grow. Awesome, man. Yeah, well, I think um, you've, you've got a big legacy of end and, and zero and in the, on the ecosystem now, man. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing that. And Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. Let's uh, finish our whiskey and go down for your formal dinner part of the evening <laughs> now. Um, thank you very much to Ice House for um, hosting us and bringing <laughs> yeah. on this dinner as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nick. I could have kept chatting with Nick for hours, probably because there was whiskey involved in that podcast, but reality because he's such a lovely guy and so many interesting stories. I really enjoyed actually understanding how he got into Vend and and it was interesting to hear Nick saying that he didn't know all the things and that he sometimes had imposter syndrome because as someone that worked at Vend and used to walk around the office and see Nick, he always had all his shit together and I always idolized him and thought he was such a, an amazing guy. And so I hope that this this podcast is is teaching us that you know, we're all trying to learn. We're all trying to do these amazing things and we're trying to figure it all out together. And people just come onto the podcast and tell us that, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter what you think of us, doesn't matter how we're perceived online or in person. And so I love that these conversations and stimulating these and, and I hope you're enjoying them too. And so thanks for all our audience, whether it be online video or in audio and, and people coming up to me in the street and telling me about it now. We get so many guests that I wanted to come onto the podcast and so we're, we're trying to get a hold of them all um, and I love that everyone's subscribing. I love that if it's blowing up and so thank you so much. You know, pop some comments below and let us know how why you like this episode. Uh, let us know who you want to see next and, and share it around, please. Please do. Let's get it across everyone into the ecosystem and beyond. And so until next time, thanks so much. 
This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.